Hi guys, thanks so much for watching Speaking of Founders Mission. Today I am with Mike Critelli, who is the co-founder of the Make Us Well Network. Thank you so much for being here, Mike. Oh, you're very welcome, Stephanie. So let's start. Tell me what is Make Us Well Network? Make Us Well Network is an invitation-only network that I'm creating. Uh, we just uh, launched uh, on a limited basis this past week, and our goal is to come up with better insights for the prevention, the containment, and the damage reduction, not just from COVID-19, but from future pandemics, and really to uh, change the face of public health and well-being in the United States. And we're doing that by bringing together a group of thought leaders uh, where we believe the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts, you know, we're operating outside of government, uh, outside of organizational boundaries. And uh, our hope is that uh, based on some of my past life experiences, we can make a difference. It might sound like an obvious question, but why now? Why is this so important to do now? Because we are lost in the wilderness and dealing with this virus. Mm -hmm. uh, the tools that we're using the data that we're using, the goals that we're setting, and uh, are not working. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see that in the reimposition and pull back to earlier stages of reopening in states like uh, New York. Uh, the fact that the UK has implemented a national lockdown for a month. Uh, what we're doing right now is failing. And there are reasons why it is failing. And part of that is the fact that uh, those who are making the decisions are not able to do out of the box thinking and come at the problem in a different way. Is there anyone that you look to or any country that you look to that you think is handling this properly, specifically with COVID-19? Uh, frankly, uh, I think it's hard to point to a model anywhere because the circumstances are so different. We, one of the themes that uh, Make Us Well is going to be all about is we have to find solutions that work for the United States and that work for communities within the United States. We need the optimal combination of federal government guidance and resources but locally based solutions. And when I say locally based, it may be about a particular kind of process like a, a school system, a business. How do we deal with people who wanna have private social gatherings? How do we deal with entertainment, uh, sports? Uh, that's one of the issues we have. We get these uh, big national guidance principles I was listening to a Sunday morning public service interview with a man who runs town sports programs in New Jersey. And when he was asked about COVID-19, he said, I get a lot of detailed guidance, but I wanna know how do I safely put kids on the field, parents in the stands, coaches on the sidelines and staff working in close proximity to one another and make everybody safe doing this. And that's what's missing today. It seems to be the million dollar question. No one has the answer. And that I never really thought about what you just said, that there is a lot of guidance, but there's not really a true solution. I mean, obviously I know there's not a solution, but just to hear it said that way, 
really makes a lot of sense. And so you and your team are going through and you have a four, four prongs that you're trying to work on. Yes, the first is obviously to set the right goals. Uh, we cannot survive as a society if we focus single-mindedly on COVID-19 and ignore cancer, heart disease, uh, you know, opioid overdoses, other chronic diseases, mental health, uh, which account for five times the number of deaths in a year that COVID-19 will. I just this morning got news that our family dentist passed away this past week. And he didn't die of COVID-19. He died of one of the other conditions that uh, uh, we still have to deal with. And one of the issues we have to figure out is how do we safely access healthcare and deliver healthcare uh, and change population health so that in the course of saving people from the virus, we don't cause them to die or get hospitalized for another reason. So that's goal number one, which is how do we have a, a good set of goals? Secondly, we need better data. Uh, we focus on positive test cases, which are only a subset of the total universe of people infected. So they're both too broad in the sense that a lot of people who are testing positive are not going to get seriously ill and are not contagious and too narrow. A lot of people who are sick are not getting tested. So we have to come up with a better way to measure what's going on in this society. The third is what we mentioned a moment ago, which is how do we design solutions and bring together thought leaders to do so. And uh, I did that with Anthrax. I brought together a private sector group and I'll share with you what I did on that in a moment before the summary. And the fourth is how do we rebuild public trust, mm -hmm. which has broken down completely, partly because of politics, partly because of uh, inconsistent government guidance, partly because it is an inherently complex subject that we have to figure out how to simplify, and partly because of legacies of people that distrust uh, government, science, and healthcare. I love that you're creating a group of people. So who all, when you're thinking of this, when you come up with this idea, who are the people that you start thinking, okay, I need these 10, five, six people. What do, how'd you get there? Well, that's a very good question. And my question, as I uh, think about the network, keeps evolving. So I uh, early on figured out, obviously, the community engagement and people, and learning from people who have been successful in the public sector, such as former mayors or former heads of community engagement are important. But I also came to realize that when you're dealing with subsets of the population, we need people who are conversant with the stakeholders that will help change the trust issue. So we recruited a couple of weeks ago an African-American nurse who had been a dean of a school out in California and uh, who's had a lot of experience in trust building in the community. And then obviously people who design end-to-end uh, -end solution sets. I brought in a former partner at uh, the design firm IDEO, who's now at uh, University of Texas Medical School and individuals who have a good 
ground level understanding of systems and processes and data. So just a few examples. And obviously, since this disease, since all uh, viruses originate in animals, clearly we have to have veterinarians represented. And we have two of them in our, our founding group. So what is the first milestone? What are you trying to tackle? And then how, what's your first goal? Or do you have a first goal yet? Are we still in the beginning phases of planning? I think the first goal is just to uh, get some of the facts out. And there are some basic facts that, that inadvertently government officials got wrong or got people confused on. For example, um, back in the spring, uh, I think if we were watching any of the media, we were watching people say, if you wear a mask, it will not keep you from getting the virus, but it'll protect others if you have the virus. And that is technically accurate, but it's badly misleading. Because if you are wearing a mask, you may very well be able to filter out enough viral particles to convert what could be a serious case of the virus to a harmless one. Hmm. And that is now supported by ample research. Uh, and uh, it's increasingly getting into the public domain that that's a good thing to do. And the fact that the public has it fixed that the only rationale for wearing a mask is to keep others from getting a virus you have, that means that if I'm a young person and I don't think I have the virus, I'm not gonna wear a mask. And it looks like an overreach by government to mandate that I wear one. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing in private social gatherings, a lot of people that don't think they have the virus of violating mask mandates. But if it were turned around and we told those people, you could protect yourself mm -hmm. from getting a serious case from an asymptomatic carrier of the virus, then I think behaviors would be very different. It, it has to be explained better. Similarly, testing has to be explained better. And we have to migrate from just testing people with symptoms to much broader based testing to understand what we're dealing with in terms of penetration of the virus. So those are a couple early essays that we're going to spread out to the network and get to the outside to start to change the public perception. Uh, and we also have to figure out from a problem solving standpoint, how do we deal with the fact that holidays are coming up, people wanna have private social gatherings, Banning private gatherings is probably going to be as ineffective as prohibition was <laughs> in banning alcohol usage. And in, and in fact, when I talked to a politician the other day, and he said, oh, we're going to start handing out summonses in my town, $100 fines for people that aren't wearing masks in indoor spaces. My reaction is, uh, you're describing in this conversation uh, things that are doomed to failure because during the same conversation, he said that after an outbreak caused by a gathering of people from the football team, they asked the coach to identify who uh, was at the party 
and he claimed not to know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, you're going to get the same non-cooperation uh, multiplied by coming down more harshly on people. So you have to make it in people's interest to comply rather than using the hammer that, is, that isn't already working. So it sounds like listening to you talk about the last couple things that we've covered, really it's a proactive approach. It's not the, you know, the mandates after. It's not, you know, okay, we have to do this now that this has happened. It's, hey, let's proactively communicate how things should be happening. Let's proactively communicate what's important and what they need to know next and how to stay safe. That was something just going back to my prior life and uh, being the industry leader and spokesman on anthrax, the risk with the anthrax crisis was very limited. It was uh, incoming mail to government and to the media from people who were putting postage stamps on envelopes and where there were no return addresses on the envelopes and very suspicious looking uh, outer shapes and sizes. And we solved that problem in three ways. First of all, we took the mail processing for government clients offsite. So at least if there was a problem, it wasn't gonna shut down a building. We segregated stamped mail from mail where you knew who the sender was. So we didn't believe that the American Express bill needed to be treated the same way as an anonymous stamped letter from an unknown returned address. And we also said to anybody that wanted it, like the members of the House of Representatives, if you are receiving a constituent letter, we're happy to open it up, scan it, and send it to you electronically. And we'll quarantine the remainder of the mail and send it to you when we're assured that it's safe. And we never had a problem after that. The government spent a billion dollars on what turned out to be overkill. Uh, and when I say overkill, I'm, not, I'm speaking literally as well as figuratively. They killed not only anthrax, but also uh, camera film, uh, foods, and other kinds of content and envelopes in order to protect members of government from uh, anthrax. They ended up killing a lot of things that should not have been killed. So we solved the problem in a simpler, faster, cheaper way with a private sector task force that I led. And I think the same can happen again here. How did you get chosen for that? And how did you work with the government? Uh, I got chosen for a good reason. Pitney Bowes was the leader in operating government mailrooms. We ran 650 mailrooms around the country. So uh, we were the only company that had that kind of reach into incoming mail. And you were uh, leading Pitney Bowes at that point. I was leading Pitney Bowes. And uh, I, uh, my team worked with really uh, one of the, with the federal government. And it was very interesting. Even then, uh, we did not have the political division that we have today, because this was right after 9-11. There was this period of government unity, but the Justice Department through the FBI, HHS through the Centers for Disease Control, and OSHA 
and the Postal Service all had different approaches to some of the same problems. So my team and the task force team had to help bring these uh, siloed government agencies together. And relative to dealing with the media, I was the sole spokesman for the private sector. I did about 80 interviews over a four to five week period. Do you think that your ability to successfully handle that, and the anthrax thing obviously is high interest to the government because they were the ones impacted by the attacks. Yeah, and the media were. And the media. But in terms of working with the government now on something like healthcare and something is, highly you know sensitive uh like COVID is right now so touchy do you think that your previous experience working with them and working with them as an ally on anthrax is going to help the milk make us well network have better inroads now it'll help uh, this is a different circumstance uh, our biggest challenge with this crisis is that it brings to the surface what's called the trolley dilemma I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's, it's an ethics problem that is taught in uh, philosophy classes, ethics classes, and uh, think tanks. And it's the case where a, uh, an, a trolley conductor can stay on the main trolley line and there are five people that he will kill if he stays on the main trolley line, although they might have a chance of escaping, but he has a high probability of killing five people. But if he veers off the spur line, he will definitely kill one person. Mm. And the question is, what does he do? And what you have here is uh, this balancing between uh, a relative certainty that we're gonna have a certain number of hospitalizations and deaths if we uh, take certain paths, but an even greater level of risk to uh, all these other conditions like cancer and heart disease, where let's say 60% of the people are not getting their cancer care. And we know from a lot of studies that if you delay uh, cancer screenings for six months and focus on, let's say, that's those same resources on COVID-19, many more people will die than would have died from cancers if you had gotten those screenings on a timely basis. And that's true of every life-threatening condition. And what, we're, what we have to figure out today is how do we strike that balance? How do we come up with a both-and solution as opposed to just focusing on COVID-19 because that's the most visible kind of problem we have today? I assume that you're working as part of your task force. You have people who are leading people either from health carriers or other you know, medical centers. And so are you working on an approach to, through your AI, find out who these people who are at higher risk for, if you're at high risk for cancer and heart disease and other things like that, then you're also at risk for, high, for COVID-19, having a serious condition from that. So are you working to find a way to identify people like that who are at super high risk because they may have cancer or be going through treatment and be at higher risk for COVID-19? Well, you know, it's interesting you asked that question. When I mentioned data, one of the missing links 
in all of this is understanding from clinical records and proactively communicating with the people that are truly at high risk that aren't getting proper care. When I was at Pitney Bowes as the head of HR and then as CEO, we took examples of cases where in 20, let's just use, let's bring this to the present. Somebody was diagnosed with type two diabetes in 2018 and they spent $5,000 on diagnostics and treatment. And in 2019, they spent nothing. Uh, many health plans would look at that as a success. We looked at that as a red flag that in 2020 or, or beyond, they were gonna have even higher healthcare costs. So we proactively reached out to the people who should have been getting care but weren't. And we brought down the cost of chronic diseases considerably by that proactive outreach. Today, one of the things we need to do, and I have uh, several people with uh, employer-sponsored health and public health uh, backgrounds in this network, we, we need to be doing more proactive outreach through telehealth or through other kinds of community organizations to deal with these conditions that if left untreated are going to cause deaths or hospitalizations this year or next year. We have a doctor who is certified in addiction medicine and uh, who runs a couple treatment centers. And she is terrified at the uh, reduction in focus on opioid uh, treatments because she said, we're gonna pay for that. If we don't pay this year, we're gonna see a spike up in deaths next year and the year after, because we're not dealing with that adequately right now. Our, our, we've taken our eye off the ball. So that's just one example. Mental health treatments, those people that are at risk of suicide. We have a psychologist in our network who uh, is deeply concerned about the absence of proactive mental health. And uh, we have a gentleman in the network who is doing virtual mental health therapy through uh, uh, telehealth in, uh, his, in his business. So we're gonna bring those people together and try to figure out how can we more pro better proactively reach the people who should be getting care but aren't getting it. Hmm. That's tricky, especially with, you know, you have two different avenues there because with things like addiction and um, mental health, they're not necessarily things that show up on a test. You know, you can't get a blood test that you see that. And so that's challenging to diagnose preventively. And that's, you know, God, you just need all the experts to try to figure that out. And then on the other end, you have the things that hopefully, I don't know that they're easier, but hopefully there's a, a faster solution for those people who have things like type 2 diabetes that you can see clearly on a blood test. It's diagnosable. You know that this person has it. You know that it's not going to go away with type 2 diabetes, at least not with um, care and treatment and lifestyle changes. So how do you manage the two different approaches of trying to find something that you have clear testing that shows that these people have an issue, you know it, it's going to show up, and they are at a health risk, and then trying to help preventively for people who might be dealing with addiction or mental health issues that aren't going to show up on a, a test? Uh, that's a very, very good question. And um, 
I am recruiting to the network experts in artificial intelligence that infer mental health issues from other data points. Uh, let's just take an employer situation. When someone is a great long-term employee and all of a sudden they start having absenteeism patterns that they haven't had before, or their work quality suffers, or their social interaction with other people deteriorates, we don't have a, a way of definitively diagnosing them, but we can proactively do outreach to them and get them back into some kind of care. We also have to eliminate barriers to care, uh, which we did very, very well at Pitney Bowes through our use of the employee assistance program. You can tell from certain life events uh, that people are going to have mental health issues. Some mental health issues, by the way, fo follow physiological health problems. So if somebody has open heart surgery, they are going to have about a year of uh, severe depression, which means you need a, a mental health intervention to follow the, uh, the, the rehabilitative therapy for uh, uh, heart disease. So there are things you can do even within the data that you do have, some of which is not health, uh, health data. Absenteeism, uh, performance reviews, employee feedback about their managers. Uh, you know, you can find that stuff uh, without having to deal with personally identifiable health information. I love your idea of focusing on employers and helping them directing people to the EAP because that can make a difference. And then switching subjects, when you were talking about the open heart surgery, that's such a revelation that people have a year or year and a half of depression after going through that major, major surgery. And your team being able to identify things like that and bring that to the forefront can really help coordinate care. And you know, maybe now you don't just see a, a rehab therapist or a cardiologist, you also see your mental health professional in certain increments. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got a, a, there's an odd connection between my prior life in the mailing industry and mental health. In, in many countries like the UK, they are very attentive to the mental health of senior citizens and others that are living alone. So uh, as an example, the letter carrier will be tasked in a place like the UK or Ireland to actually periodically knock on the door of the uh, mail recipient and say, how are things going? Here that doesn't happen because they're graded on productivity. But even here, if you go to the mailbox, and see that for several days in a row, someone has not picked up their mail where they used to pick it up every day, that's a red flag. And letter carriers uh, are already uh, turning in data about uh, people that may not live somewhere anymore, but they theoretically could be helpful resources in identifying cases where people uh, may be going through some difficult times. What about you gave you the, the interest in trying to tackle these giant problems like anthrax and healthcare, you know, pandemic? 
well, in the case of healthcare, it was part of my job at Pitney Bowes. And I discovered that the prevailing wisdom was completely misguided. And it was based on a number of false assumptions. And in 1991, I was in a position where my benefits team was best in class in having healthcare costs increase at 12% a year when the market average was 14%. But at that rate, we would have had to severely punish our employees by sharing, doing a lot more cost sharing. And my, uh, my boss, my predecessor as CEO said, we won't go down that path. You've got to find another way to do it. And uh, I found uh, a lecture from a researcher at Dartmouth who pointed out that there was essentially no correlation between what communities spent on healthcare and the results they got, hmm. which told me that it was not about spending a lot of money. It wasn't about the inputs. It was about, were you spending it correctly? Were you taking the right actions? Prevention became clearly one of our core strategies and it worked. Uh, better navigation through the healthcare system became a core strategy and it worked. Better design and signaling in our health plans as to what we rewarded and what we discouraged was a strategy we employed and it worked. So we, we delivered a lot of value by doing things that nobody else was doing. And I guess if you looked at my life and my uh, inclination, it is to find that path that nobody else is finding. It sounds like you can probably also use that same strategy that you did with Anthrax, where you said you were working with OSHA, you're working with HSS and all the other organizations and figuring out, just even hearing them tell you, okay, here's our approach, and then realizing that it's a totally different approach than somebody else. So I think your team's going to be able, with such high-level experts that you do, I think they're going to be able to draw out from all these different fields. Okay, we have all these different plans, and then you guys work together and say, okay, well, we know this works, we know this doesn't, let's form something around, you know, this group of things that does. Yeah, one of the things I've um, really done all my life is uh, there was a, the, the, the tagline of Sporting News, which I subscribed to for a very long time, was see a different game. And I have tended to look at situations and problems uh, from a completely different lens from other people. Sometimes I miss, miss it, but I frame issues and look for solutions that other people may not be looking for. So credentialed people very often stay within their lane and they get to the top of their profession and they, they absorb and internalize the vocabulary and the way of thinking of that profession, that market, that discipline, that agency, whatever you want to call it. And I tend not to do that. Even when I ran Pitney Bowes, I often asked the question, if, what are we missing? 
if we were coming in from the outside, what would we do differently? And what would others who are looking at us expect us to do differently? And that was an exercise I, in, I routinely did and had my own team doing mm -hmm. as a uh, check and balance on our thinking. So where do you think your team is gonna be in six months and then one year? What's your hope? I think in the early part of this, there's gonna be a lot of human intelligence. I'm gonna be matching people together on the team and orchestrating uh, conduct uh, and communication. I have a sponsor, Chicago Pacific Founders, through one of its co-founders, Larry Leisure. I'm gonna get his advice and counsel along with those of my colleagues. Uh, but uh, a year from now, I hope we're starting to have a lot of these interactions on a more automated basis and having most of it transferred to AI matching versus me having to do the matching. And uh, six months from now, we might have two to 300 uh, invited members. I hope we have 500 uh, subscribers to the network who are, are adding value as well as receiving content. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about a lot of the human factors here uh, that will influence success. Uh, I think that whom we invite to the network, the rules of the road that we have, the fact that we, are, we don't have a political agenda, uh, is, it's extremely important. How can people get involved if they love what you're talking about and they want to be part of the Make Us Well Network? Well, we will eventually uh, allow people to ask to be subscribers. Depending on what we know about them, they're going to be either a much more engaged subscriber where we're going to connect them more closely with our founders, or we're going to just make them uh, providers or recipients of content and more occasional contributors. So we're still working through that. We'll probably have a couple tiers and maybe more of subscribers. That's gonna be really great. I can't wait to see what you guys do. You're on quite the mission and I'm really impressed. <laughs> Thank you. We would be very happy if you would join us. I would be happy to. Yeah. I appreciate the invite. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciated talking to you and learning from you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you guys for watching. Bye.